Hi everyone. I normally talk about the issues we face in the West, but today I'm taking you to a very different territory. My guest is Dr. Amy Albim, a humanitarian working with displaced Yazidis in Iraq and beyond. She is the author of the last Yazidi genocide, which is available on Amazon. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Hi, Greta, and thank you for inviting me. I've followed you on YouTube and I'm very excited and impressed that you're delving very deep into the subject of women's issues and equity. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have a lot to cover, but let's start at the beginning. How did your humanitarian journey begin? I was retired. I've had several long careers. I have my PhD in education. That was the first career as an English teacher and school administrator. And then I left that in the 80s. And I've had 35 years working in software development, running my own company and consulting. And then I retired. So I went to Turkey. I was on holiday in Turkey. And, and actually, I'd been there a few months enjoying Eastern Turkey which some people refer to as the region of Kurdistan, but that's Kurdistan, Turkey, not Kurdistan, Iraq. So um, through happen circumstances, I started a tourism business there. So I have a small retirement business called um, Mount Ararat Trek, and we take climbing tours from around the world to one of the highest mountains in Europe, Mount Ararat. So I was living then in Southeast Turkey to uh, experience the beauty of Turkey and, and building a bus tour. So I know every village and town and city in Eastern and Southeastern Turkey. And that's when ISIS, the Islamic State, attacked the Yazidi people in Northern Iraq. Which year was this? This was actually uh, to the date, August 3rd, 2014, ISIS had already taken control of Mosul, which is the capital of a state or province called Nineveh. And where the Yazidis live is in Nineveh, in the region called Shangal. And that is in northern Iraq. And they took control of Mosul June 9th and 10th of 2014. A few weeks later, August 3rd, then they attacked Shangal, which is a region in that province or government of Ninua. And that is the homeland of the Azidis. The Azidis are a non-Muslim ethno-religious minority in Iraq, a very, very tiny minority. So they attacked in one day. And within 12 hours, 350 people had fled from their homes. 350,000. 350,000, did I not say 1,000? Yes. yes. Thank you for catching yes. that. It's, it's all in my head. So how did you first encounter the Yazidis personally? Right. So it was, on, uh, it was on the world news, and maybe some of your viewers will vaguely remember seeing on the international news there were people who were stranded on the top of a mountain, Shingal Mountain. Between 30 and 50,000 people were stranded there for nine days with no water. 
those people who could escape got in their cars and went north to Kurdistan, which is also in Iraq, Kurdistan, Iraq. But those who couldn't escape walked up and, and took safety on the mountain. And they were there with no food or water. It was a humanitarian disaster. So President Obama at the time ordered on August 9th uh, that there should be airstrikes. And so between the uh, PKK militias on the ground and the coalition airstrike from the air, they opened a pathway for the, the Yazidis to get off the mountain and go to Syria and then to Kurdistan to safety. And now, uh, so Kurdistan took them in and they opened IDP camps. IDP stands for internally displaced persons. So refugees, according to the UN, means somebody who's left their country and crossed a border. And in IDPs are people who didn't leave their country. They left a region of their country. So there are now about 300,000 displaced Yazidis in Kurdistan, in camps. 200,000 in camps, 100,000 in unfinished buildings. Um, so when they were fleeing uh, in that day, there were 25,000 who didn't stop in Kurdistan. They went all the way to Turkey. They came over the mountain pass between Iraq and Turkey. And that's where I encountered them because I was living in a city called Shernak in far southeast Turkey, very close to the border. So I drove up to the mountain village because uh, I'd seen some photos posted on Facebook. And I thought maybe there were some Yazidis there. I had never heard of Yazidis before. I, I, I didn't know who were the Yazidi people or nation. And there, there were hundreds there in the school. And that was my first encounter. That was September 3rd, one month to the, to the date after the attack. So it had taken them a month by car and walking to reach there. And that's when I first became involved with them. Um, I was surrounded by people six or 10 deep because they thought that since I was a foreigner and I was the only outsider there, that I must be from the UN or the Red Cross or I must be someone who'd come to take their story and help them. But I was just living there and they lined up to tell me their stories. So I got my notebook out because I'm a writer. I always carry a notebook with me. And I started writing down names. And they called one woman Sarah. They said, bring Sarah here. And Sarah came and um, she showed me the picture of her, the IDs actually, of her husband and her two little children, very five and eight, a boy and a girl. And she said, ISIS took them. They came into her home shooting and they took them and she ran for her life. Uh, I got up to hug her when I understood this, and she broke down in tears and fainted in my arms. Um, she went down sobbing, and then her mother, who was there, looked at her daughter on the ground. Then the mother fainted. This was my second day, and I was terribly, terribly shook up by it. So I knew that I couldn't turn away from this. And, and that was the beginning. And it's uh, almost seven years now. And I haven't stopped since then helping the Yazidis. Do you remember the moment 
you realized you could not stop and you had to go on helping these people? Um, actually, no. I did my work one day at a time. And every day for seven years, <laughs> I feel like crying. Every day for seven years, I say, today I'm quitting. Today I'm quitting. I can't do it anymore because it does take a toll on me also with the trauma of hearing their stories uh, and wanting to help people and failing at helping them in a larger scale than, than what I do do. So uh, I, at this point, um, have given my life to this. I've given into the fact that this is my life work and I'll work at it till I go to my grave. Um, so before we go into what exactly you are doing in any more detail, I'm just wondering how come no big international organizations or NGOs were helping these people at the time? Iraq has got sectarian division. From when the American occupation was there from 2003 to 2011, uh, it really splintered apart between Arabs and there's two divisions, Shia and Sunni. They practice different versions of Islam. And it's really quite a splinter. And then you have Kurds who are also Muslim. And then you have the people who are not Muslims, the Christians and the Yazidis, and there's some Assyrians, some smaller groups. Um, Yazidis was the largest minority group, religious mm -hmm. minority. Uh, and and that sectarianism was dividing, is dividing Iraq. The Arabs are in from the middle. Let's see, from starting from the south of Iraq, you have Shia. In the middle of Iraq, you have predominantly Sunni Arabs, and then you have what's called the disputed territory, this Nineveh province or government where the Yazidis lived. And then you have Kurdistan to the north uh, border of Iraq, and they're Kurds. So you have these sectarian divisions. Kurdistan uh, is made up um, predominantly of Kurds, and the Kurds have wanted their own independent country for 100 years, since 1923 treaty. And they're divided between four countries, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. Most Kurds, 20 million Kurds, live in Turkey, but there's about 4 million Kurds who live in Kurdistan, Iraq, and that's its official name. So when people say Kurdistan, they're talking about Iraq, the northern province of Iraq. And that Kurdistan had a referendum for independence on September 25th, 2017. They wanted their independence from the rest of Iraq because the, the state was more or less falling apart. The government wasn't functioning well. Uh, it passed 97%, and they were very excited that the will of the people showed they wanted independence. It wasn't a vote to be independent. It was a vote to have the will of the people. All the countries of the world refused to acknowledge it. And that's when things really started going bad between Kurdistan and Baghdad, the central government. So the capital of Kurdistan is Erbil, and the capital of Iraq, the whole country, 
is Baghdad. So we talk about the division between Arab-built government and Baghdad government. And it's from 2017, it's gotten progressively worse. The media says it's getting better, but um, there's such deep, deep hostility and antagonism between the Kurds and the Arabs that it's, uh, it's a long way to go. The Yazidis are the ones who suffer because their homeland is coveted by Kurdistan, by Turkey, by militias called the PKK, Kurdish from Turkey, and by Arabs. Uh, everybody wants it. And they don't get any say-so because they don't have much power. So this just goes on and on. So th to um, get a visa to go in as a humanitarian or an NGO to help them, you have to apply for a three-month or six-month visa, and it's almost impossible to get it. You have to be one of two things. You either have to be an NGO or you have to have a work contract. You can't just go there as humanitarian and say, I want to help. That's how I went. I didn't have a contract. I wasn't an NGO. And they said, you can't stay here. And I said, I will stay here. And I stayed there seven years. Uh, so there's a border crossing by land, by car, between Kurdistan in the north and the Muslim Baghdad south of that. And they check your IDs and passports as if you're coming and going between countries. So if you fly into Kurdistan, you can get your visa and you can work in the IDP camps in Kurdistan, but you can't cross the border and go to Shangal or Mosul or Baghdad. If you fly into Baghdad, like I do and get my visa there, I can go to the mountain where people were displaced and I can do my work there, but it's very hard for me to cross into Kurdistan. I do do it because I fight to do it because my visa from Baghdad is for the Republic of Iraq and Kurdistan still is the Republic of Iraq, even though many people in the Kurdish government don't want to acknowledge that. That's, that's keeping all the NGOs and humanitarians away. So where are you based in Iraq? I was based the first three years in Kurdistan, in Dahuk, Kurdistan which is in between about a dozen or more camps, uh, IDP camps. And then in 2000, that was from early 2015, I went from Turkey to Iraq. In early, uh, in 2017, I tried to go to Shangal. I've been there many times, but in 2017, the uh, Asayaj, that's the security police for Kurdistan, they refused to let me cross the border to go to Mosul and Shangal. So for one year, I couldn't go to Shangal to do my work. So I was forced to go to Baghdad if I wanted to go do my work on the mountain and in the villages that were emptied out by the attack. And for uh, 2018, 19, 20, and 21, I went to Baghdad and I got a one-year multi-entry visa three years in a row. This is coming up on another year. So then I can go to the mountain. And I actually was the only foreigner, not just American, the only foreigner with the permission to go to Shangal and live there. That's my residence in uh, Sinjar city, Shangal. Sinjar is the Arabic word and Shangal is the Kurdish word. They mean the same thing. There's a city and there's a region like New York City, New York. 
So to differentiate and help people understand, I refer to the city where I live as Sinjar, and the whole region is Shengal, and it has uh, several dozen villages on both the north and south side of the mountain. That's where I do my work. So going back to the beginning, why did ISIS attack the Yazidis in the first place? That's the million dollar question that people ask. Um, the Yazidis say it was because of their religion. The uh, ISIS had a platform which they took from Islamic fundamentalist Islamic teaching uh, that calls for a religious jihad. And that means they must convert everyone in the world to Islam, Muslims. Uh, not, I want to add for your viewers that not all Muslims in Iraq signed on to this ideology. ISIS also attacked the Sunnis, they attacked the Shia, but it, it, was, uh, it was a Sunni organization. And they had been more or less disenfranchised when the Americans occupied Iraq and took over Saddam Hussein's government and they were, they were Sunni and they pushed them out. And in one day, Paul Bremer from the United States fired all of the mid-level managers in the government and disbanded the Iraqi army and they were Sunni. So you had tens of thousands of Sunnis who were out of jobs and couldn't put food on their families, uh, uh, couldn't feed their families. They replaced the bureaucracy, the, the government bureaucracy with Shia. Shia are predominantly in Baghdad in the south. Uh, so the Sunnis felt disenfranchised. That's one piece of it. Religion was used as the uh, tool by ISIS to take over and make their caliphate. They wanted to have a Sunni state. They called it a caliphate. And they wanted it to stretch, including uh, Iraq, uh, Syria, Lebanon. They, wa they wanted to take over the whole Middle East as ISIS. Uh, they started in Syria. It got, they did get training in Jordan. There is, um, I think there's some legitimacy to the talk of the historic history of this, that the US and other countries might have helped train them in Jordan to overthrow Assad, the leader of Syria. This is how it got started. They wanted to overthrow that government. But like most plans by the CIA that go awry, don't follow according to their plan. It, it morphed into this terrible group, ISIS, that went about uh, killing and raping, just, just savageness. So ISIS recruited people from all over the world. And it, it said that 30,000 people came from over 80 different countries and signed up. They were promised a house because the Shia, who ISIS attacked, had vacated their houses. So they got a nice house. They could send their kids to an Islamic school. They got a paycheck and they got a, an Azidi girl for sex, even if they had a wife and kids. So this enticed people. 
I want to I add that, that most of the people in ISIS were Iraqis, born and bred in Iraq. The leadership came from Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is where this fundamentalist belief, it, it's, it's homeland for this fundamentalist belief. So they, after attacking Mosul, June 9th and 10th in 2014, then they, they went and attacked the Yazidis. And uh, they had the intention to destroy the whole population. They, they captured women and girls, and they killed many men, several thousand men. And they used the concept of shame in order to destroy the Yazidi community. So let's talk a bit about Yazidi culture, because the concept of honor is very important here, isn't it? Yes, it's core. It's a core issue to what happened to the Yazidis. Um, Yazidis have taken on many of the customs and traditions of Muslims. I want to make it clear they're not Muslim. Their religion is different. They don't read the Quran or the Bible. They have their own religion. They are. Uh, they do believe in one God, uh, and they're they're quite humanistic. If I had to define them, they're very humanistic people. They believe in kindness and loving your neighbor, and they don't believe in war and hatred. So um, the similarity in the culture has to do with how women are treated, and that is because it's the culture of the entire Middle East, not just Iraq. So because Yazidis are living in a Muslim culture in the Middle East, they have adopted many of those customs. And one of the customs is that women stay home, cook and clean and have children, and the man goes out to work. And there is a very strict code that Yazidis don't marry outside of the Yazidi religion. They have to marry with another Yazidi. Very strict. If they marry outside of their religion, they are... <clears throat> ostracized from being a Zidi. The children of that marriage will not be a Z considered a Zidi. Uh, so you have to be a virgin before you get married. Not just Yazidis, but the Muslim cultures too. So there's no concept of dating. There, There is no dating. There's no hand-holding. There's no going off in your car in a dirt road and kissing and making out. It's unheard of, just unheard of. The women don't go out unless there's a male with them, a brother or father, uncle. Times are changing a little bit. If a woman were to have sex before marriage or to be raped, she would be um, banned. She would be banished. In fact, her own family might kill her. This is also with the Muslim culture. It wasn't special to the Yazidi culture. But ISIS knew this concept, and they thought by stealing all of the Yazidi women and raping them, that those women would not be welcomed back by their families. They would not be allowed to go back to escape. And they made everyone to convert to Islam. So the boys and men who were captured and not killed were also, everyone was forced to convert to Islam if they were captured. So those two things, you're not allowed to go back if you convert, and you're not allowed to go back if you had sex. That was the plan 
to destroy the Yazidi population using this concept of honor and shame if you weren't a virgin before marriage. Um, what happened was this an organization called the Yazidi Spiritual Council, and they manage the Yazidi religion, we'll say. And they put out an edict called the Fatwa that anyone who was uh, captured by ISIS would be welcomed back into the Yazidi community, uh, not even the concept of forgiven because they knew they were innocent victims. So there was no concept of forgiving anyone. They would be welcomed back. And in fact, they had to come back. They were ordered, you must come back. We still have over, there were 10,000 uh, Yazidis who were killed and captured in August of 2014. Um, Maybe 2,000 men were killed. Many of the women have come back, about 3,000 women and children, and over 2,000 are still missing. In your book, you write about the murder of a lot of men and how those men were given the option to either convert to Islam or be killed. And by the sounds of it, a lot of them chose death of a conversion to Islam. How do you explain that? Or have you met any survivors who can explain that? The Azidis say that this genocide in 2014 was their 74th genocide. Historians say there used to be 23 million, some say 83 million Azidis in that region of the world when it was referred to as Mesopotamia. Uh, so they've seen these genocides decrease and decrease and decrease their population through conversion, through being killed or converted to Islam. Many, many converted. There's such a small population now, less than a half a million, that they they just had the position they would die before they would convert, and uh, and they got killed. In in reality. There were those who converted. They said, okay, well, they were captured, not killed, and taken in busloads. And Dash made video of 30 rows of men all lined up converting and kneeling down and praying. That was the conversion. And Dash, uh, we call ISIS Dash in Iraq. So ISIS used that as propaganda video that you see they converted. The fact is that ISIS continued to kill those men, even though they converted. It, it was it was like a movie script. It was a play. They were going to kill them anyway. Let's talk about the men first. So the men who chose to convert, you're, you're saying a lot of them were killed anyway, but what was the idea? Was uh, the they ultimatum were, they were given, were they going to be treated as equals? Um. Well, that was the lie that was given to them. We love you. We're doing this for your own good so you can get to heaven because infidels, that is, people who don't yeah. believe in Islam, don't get to heaven. So this, it was a carrot and stick kind of a game with them. Uh, but those who converted, no one converted freely. They had already been captured. They were forced. And there were the video cameras and you're going to do it or we're going to cut your head off. They cut off a lot of heads. People who followed what happened with ISIS over the last number of years may have seen one or two beheadings, but ISIS actually beheaded hundreds and hundreds of people 
They also beheaded Sunnis and Shia who didn't cooperate, who didn't support their efforts. Uh, if you had joined up with ISIS and you wanted, you opened your eyes and you wanted to get away, escape. If you tried to escape, you could be beheaded. So uh, ISIS went around beheading and shooting to death many people who had converted or already were Muslim. They used religion in this nice way that said, we're going to love you and it's going to be wonderful if you convert. But that was a tool and a lie. So they were given the choice to convert or be killed or in in the in the case of Kocha, one village, we'll take you to the mountain. Give us all your property, your houses, your cars, your keys, your gold, your cash, your, your uh, sheep, chickens, and we'll take you. You don't have to convert. We'll drive you to the mountain where everyone else was. Um, and that was a lie. So they gathered all the women and children. Uh, they gathered everyone in the school building of Kocho. There were 1,100 people in that village that day. Some of them weren't in the village. And they sent the women and children upstairs to the top floor of the school, the classrooms, and they kept the men and teenage boys downstairs. And in the matter of an hour or less, uh, between 11, about 11.30 and 12.30 in the afternoon on August 15th, they took all the men out to, I think it ended up being 16 or 17 sites, and they just laid them down and executed them with guns. And they videoed it. Uh, they were proud of it. They videoed it, and they posted these videos as propaganda to show what ISIS was doing and to entice more people to come and join. So whenever ISIS captured Yazidis, they would always separate the men and the women, right? That was the, that was the first step, to separate the men and the women. The Yazidis were actually separated into smaller and smaller finite groups. Um, the boys who were 15 and older were treated with, with the men to be executed because ISIS considered them too old for brainwashing. The boys between age six and under 15, six and 15, um, they were sent off to training camp, military training camp, ISIS training camp to be brainwashed. We call it a military training camp. I've talked to a lot of the boys who got away and, and they're lovely and they're, they've recovered, but it wasn't such military training. Some of them said we had wooden guns. We did a lot of hours of reading the Quran verses in the morning and exercising. Then we had breakfast. Then we um, had calisthenics and marching drills for a couple hours. And then we ran, ran the read the Quran more. So actually ISIS was using those young boys as suicide bombers. Uh, and they did brainwash. They, they did brainwash some of the children, but when those children did get free, those who have returned, uh, it took them maybe three weeks to three months before they were adjusted again. And they understood that ISIS had killed their fathers and brothers and kidnapped their sisters and destroyed the Yazidi population. They were back maybe with their mothers or younger siblings. So that was one group, uh, that, that was two groups. The older men, the adolescent boys 
And then we get to the women, all the women of every age. From that village, Kochon, definitely wasn't the only village, but it was a village that happened two weeks after the main attack. They took all of the women of every age and their young children uh, to an unfinished building called Sola Institute. And that night at midnight, they went around and collected all the young boys that they hadn't killed in Kochon, that they were going to send off to training camp. Uh, there were some who hid behind their mother's dresses. There were 12 that they didn't find. They, they bust those boys away, so they were done. Uh, there were 12 who hid, and they were with the older women in the morning. In the morning, they took all the older women, uh, we'll say like 50 and older, and they found those boys. They took the 12 boys also. And they took them outside, and they, 79 of them, and they just shot them. Um, one of the witnesses, she's a survivor, uh, she said uh, she heard seven shots. And others say an excavator came and buried them alive. So they weren't all shot because there weren't enough shots to hear to have killed 79 people. And 12 boys were on that list. Then they were down to the young mothers with their young children. So we, they were taken to Telafar, which is a city near Shingal in Ninawa, Karuna. And uh, the young mothers were allowed to keep their, and single women, they were allowed to keep their children, say, age two and younger. They are maybe even babies. They could keep them. But the little ones from, and some babies were taken, some babies were taken from the mothers. But about 400 young children under age six were put in the school, taken from their mothers and put in the school, and they were put up for sale. So there were um, Arab families who wanted a child. You know, their child was parents all over the world who liked to adopt a child. So they went to Telefar and they bought these children. I'm told they were $500 each. And those children are being raised. They're not all returned. They're being raised as Muslims. They don't know who they are. They're too little to have a memory of what happened to them when they were two or three. But that's what happened to those children. Then we come down to the last group. The young women who were single, like we'll say from age 13 and up, they were single girls, and the young married women with their little babies. That's what we have left. They were, again, divided. So this division that ISIS made, they kept dividing and subdividing and subdividing the groups. They had a different plan for each group. The single women were divided from the married women with children. And they were immediately uh, given as gifts to ISIS fighters to rape as sex. The uh, emir came in who was leading the whole operation, and he was from Saudi Arabia, and he took 150 of the prettiest girls and he left them. So a lot of them are still missing. Maybe they went to Saudi Arabia. We don't know. Uh, and then How, the how others, old were the youngest girls? Were they 13 in that group? Yes, yes, yes. The youngest even as young as nine. There is a nine-year-old girl who actually got pregnant, and she she was returned to safety. Um, 
but that pregnancy was going to kill her. I guess she had a cesarean section. I don't know if the baby survived. I Actually, I don't know if that girl survived. I have so many stories that I've collected. I can't keep following up on every story because I come in in the middle of the story and the story is still unfolding these six years. I came in on the story in Turkey when I was making lists of names of missing family members, lists and lists, 77 family, family members from one family kidnapped and missing. I never actually thought that I would see these people and live to hug the people when they came back. Now I'm much more hopeful that the 2,000 or more missing girls will come back. Um, so those young girls then were given or sold, and then they were sold and resold and resold. They were called sabaya, meaning slave, a sex slave. And the Quran has all kinds of rules of how to treat your, your sex slaves that you want as war bounty. And then um, if they weren't cooperative with the man who took them, they were not cooperative. The man would get tired of him, and eventually they got taken to Raqqa, Syria. They were sold there. And they really feared going to Raqqa, Syria, because that was definitely where they were going to be used on a daily basis for sex. Um, really quite terrible what happened to the young girls there. The married women who had young children had uh, a better chance. They might have a baby nursing and a one-year-old or two-year-old and some man might take them as his so-called wife. And if she was very lucky, she wouldn't be resold. She'd be with one man at least. But very few were that lucky. The ISIS, maybe he needed some money. He'd have some strangers come in, take some money and said, there she is, you can have sex with her. Um, rent her out for a day or a week. Uh, there's, there's many that were sold and resold and resold and resold for sex. In the book, you also write about how they treated pregnant women. So ISIS fighters were not allowed to rape a woman if she's pregnant, right? That's right. Um, it comes out of the teachings of the Quran uh, and the Hadith teachings, which is the teachings of Muhammad, who founded Islam 1,400 years ago. There's uh, Arabic terminology to d define all of this. You're not allowed to have sex with someone who's not your wife. So if she's your sex slave, she's your slave, not your wife, you're not allowed to have sex with her. So when they would sell one to the next, they would have to take her to the hospital for a pregnancy test to verify she wasn't pregnant or um, the teachings say you have to wait 40 days. And there is an Arabic word to describe this 40-day waiting period. It, it, this is a Islamic period, 40 days. So they didn't want to capture a pregnant woman because the pregnant woman was of no use to them. There was, when the older women were shot at Sola Institute, 79 elderly women, there was one woman who went out with her mother-in-law, said, I don't want to be separated from her. And she was visibly like nine months pregnant, ready to deliver. So the ISIS said, okay, you can go with your mother-in-law. They knew what they were going to do to her. 
The other woman, who's a survivor, who had two little kids, wanted to go with her mother-in-law, too. She had her baby in her arm. Uh, and they said, no, no, you, you have to go back in. So the pregnant woman got shot and killed. But the one who wasn't pregnant, was her life was saved because she was good at, for sex. They wouldn't even wait for the pregnant woman to give birth. No. There was, a, there was a massacre at a farm, a family farm. About 150 people gathered in this farmhouse. It was six kilometers north of the town village of Telazir, close to the foot of the mountain. So people were walking to the mountain to escape, those who didn't have cars. And all the family members came from town, said, maybe we'll be safer if we go to our farmhouse. There were uh, three adult brothers who owned that farmhouse and their wives and their children and their grandmother. So there was a big extended family and they went to the farmhouse. Then other people who are walking also came to the farmhouse. And um, the first thing they did, they went through the separation. They had everyone there and they uh, picked out the young girls first. They took 28 females and a 10 day old baby. There was one woman who was pregnant, visibly pregnant. They didn't take her. So she was left untouched, but they took the young girls. They had uh, two rows of ISIS men and the girls had to file out between them so they couldn't run and get in the cars. They used the cars of the Yazidis and they had their own vehicles and they took those off. Once the girls were gone, then they took the older women uh, and the women with their children and they locked them, about 50 of them, they locked them in a separate room in the house that had a window. And then they went to the men and the teenage boys and said, do you want to convert? Will you convert to Islam? And they said, no, we won't convert. So then they ordered them outside at gunpoint and um, they told them to lie down. They were going to shoot them. The one brother yelled out, run. It was very clear what was going to happen. He said, run. And people ran. There were 12 males in that family killed that day. Um, I think altogether there might have been 37 people killed from other families who were coming and were out in the field around. It's in the middle of wheat fields. Then ISIS got phone calls and they all jumped in their cars and left. And then the people who were locked in had to break the door down. They could watch out of the window the young teenage boys who were 13 and 14 years old and little children. They watched as their fathers and cousins got shot and executed and they they lay dying in the yard where they had fallen when they ran that pregnant woman then she was saved she is now the good news is she's now in australia her child is six years old uh, the uh several of the wives of the men who were killed and their younger children who are getting to be older teenagers now they got asylum in Australia. One wife and children got asylum in Germany and two wives and their children got asylum in Australia. And the grandmother who was not captured, she was left behind, um, she doesn't want to leave Iraq. So her oldest grandson, who's about 19 or 20, is staying with her in an IDP camp in Kurdistan. 
What are the conditions like in these camps? Have you visited them? Many times, yeah, I've visited them many times. Um, some camps are caravans, what we would call in the West, like a trailer, like a PVC walls. They're not fancy, they're small. And they have a, area, a toilet area. It's just about three feet square, three feet by four feet, toilet and a sink and water. And then there's a little cooking opposite that in the hallway, and there's a little cooking area. They didn't provide you with stoves or anything. You had to find your money and buy your dishes and stove burners and refrigerator. So it was just a bare caravan that they moved into. Um, and the other camps are mostly tents. Some of those were provided by UNHCR, um, but it's seven years now, and they're rotting and leaking. We're having tent fires. Less than two weeks ago, there was a, another tent fire. A lot of tents went up, and a man and his three children burned to death in that fire. And this goes on every winter because they're using electric space heaters and the wiring isn't good. Uh, so the conditions are really, really hard. There's not running water. Well, they turn the water on. Uh, maybe uh, at a scheduled time, once or twice a week, between certain hours, so you can fill your tanks. In the beginning, they had no tanks. You had to walk half a kilometer to the edge of camp and fill up your buckets with water. It was was very hard living conditions. Um, it, they're very hard living conditions still. In Shangal, many people have gone back to the villages in the last four months. The villages, especially on the south of the mountain, there's maybe a dozen major villages that had populations of 1,000 to 3,000 people. Maybe some of them were 30,000 people. They were bigger towns. They were all, as I said, emptied in one day on that August 3rd, 2014. So uh, there's two kinds of building structures. Old style houses and new style houses. The old houses are built from mud and straw brick. And every year, those houses, they have to be plastered up, patched up. So the wind and the rain don't disintegrate them. They've been sitting there empty for these nearly seven years, so they're disintegrated. They're not livable. The ceiling, the roof has fallen in, the walls have fallen over. They're not livable. And that's uh, at least half, half of the homes in the villages. Then the new style are concrete block. And they're pretty nice houses, middle class houses. And if the family had money to finish it, they're all tiled, the floor is tiled, the walls tiled. It's a pretty nice house. Those houses are structurally sound. But the electric, there's no electricity. We're trying to get the electricity restored in the villages. There's no running water, only you have to have a pump and pump your well water, and it's not drinkable. It's muddy, it's not good, muddy and salty. If the electricity goes off, which it goes off um, maybe 16 or 18 hours a day out of 24 hours, you don't have electricity, uh, then that means you don't have a pump either. So you're not pumping your water up from your well. So people use big water tanks. They fill their water tanks. And um, I live there, so I haven't had running water in the four years that I've lived there. 
I bathe like everyone else from the tank. I fill my bucket. I have a plastic cup, and that's how I wash. So these towns were destroyed by coalition airstrikes. It's my understanding, right? Not not ISIS. So it's one thing that ISIS captured all these people, but then there were airstrikes too. Is is that correct? They uh, it's half correct. Yeah, half correct. They were destroyed in two ways over, over time. Mm-hmm. I've already mentioned that the weather destroyed many of the buildings, the houses, the seven years of wind and rain. They're, they're on the ground mostly. Um, but when ISIS was controlling the villages, they were living in those houses. And, and they were living in build, big buildings, like uh, government buildings, like schools and hospitals. So the coalition airstrikes came over and had airstrikes on those buildings to kill ISIS who were in there. And the coalition, by the way, has all written down, they made the laws up and their law said, international law agreement with Iraq says, we'll help you, but we won't be financially responsible. We take no financial responsibility. So the airstrikes destroyed uh, big, two-story, very big new secondary schools, chicken cooperatives that were very big operations, maybe 45,000 chickens and nine families in a cooperative. They destroyed government buildings and they destroyed large houses. The larger, nicer houses got destroyed because that's where ISIS would move into. But in September of 2014, a month after ISIS had taken control of Shingal, they destroyed hundreds of houses, they exploded them. They targeted the Azidis who had been interpreters and worked for the United States Army or government during the occupation of US in Iraq from 2003 to 2011. Um, it, it was dangerous if ISIS found out that you had worked for the Americans. So they went and they exploded those houses in a one week period. So there were hundreds of people who had pretty good incomes because they were working on a foreign salary base and they built very nice houses, $80,000, $100,000. And that's a very nice house in Iraq. And those houses are on heaps of concrete rubble on the ground. So those families are in a very desperate situation living in the camps. They may not have been captured. They may not have any females in their family who were captured or raped by ISIS. And because they don't have any female survivors, they don't qualify for the asylum programs that were offered by Germany uh, and now France and Australia. They don't qualify. If you weren't a woman who was kidnapped and raped, you don't qualify. So you have 300,000 people who had terrible, terrible things happen to them who don't know how they can recover. And they don't qualify for asylum. They're just trapped with no good solutions. So part of your work is helping people obtain asylum in countries, Western countries, mostly Germany and Australia. That's my understanding. It sounds like there's a large proportion of people that even you can't really help get asylum, right? But there are still lots of people who are eligible for asylum applications. 
Are you actively working with those people to help them? I've had a lot of smaller projects uh, doing humanitarian aid distribution and cash in the hand and um, so forth. I raise money through PayPal. I raise money through private donations to my PayPal account. So you can see I'm not raising huge tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, and I use it in different ways. But my primary project was getting Iraqi IDs and passports. When one of the women came back, she was the sister of my translator, and she had been on my list of names I'd made when I was in the first camp in Chernak, Turkey. I, I never dreamed that I would actually hug her and come to be like family with her. When she came back, she'd been back three days and I was taking her information and her story. I said, right now, what do you most need? Her husband had been killed and her mother-in-law had been killed and her some brothers-in-law had been killed in this village of Kocha. But she was back in a caravan with her mother and father and two sisters and single brother. I said, what do you most need right now? She said, I don't need clothing, even though she was in the same black dress that she escaped in. I don't need clothing. I don't need money. I don't need a house. ISIS took everything from me. I need to leave this country and never come back. That's what I need. There were 17 other young teenage women who had escaped before her in the room listening to her story. It's a bit of a ritual. No men allowed in the surviving women who came before sit and listen to the story of the new person who's just escaped. So the next day I went out and I bought 17 very large shoulder bags to prepare them for what they could get on the plane with. And, you know, they still have those bags to this day. And I began my passport project. They didn't have passports to travel. So that's what they needed. They needed an Iraqi passport. And it was virtually impossible to get it. Even today, it's a three-year waiting period if you're from the disputed territory of Shangal. Three years for Azidis. Are they not officially Iraqi citizens? They are officially Iraqi citizens. How they come they didn't have passports? That's a good question. Because um, the excuse that is used, here's the reason, several reasons that are used. We've got uh, 40 million Iraqis, they all want passports and we can't work fast enough. There's passport offices around the country in different cities. Um, and the other excuse is that the people from Shangal, Ninawa, the office where they would go get their passports was Mosul. But Mosul was under control of ISIS for three years. So they couldn't go there to get their IDs and passports. So they had to go to Dahok, which is a city in Kurdistan near their camps. Um, and Dahok's office was for the purpose of giving passports to people who were born and live in Dahok, not from Shangal. So they said, well, we can't give passports to Azidis. So I had to fight for that. Everything that, that I've been able to achieve, I achieved through very, very hard arguments and persistence um, being set told no, 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 over and over. Uh, and I now have an agreement with the passport director that if I send them because I have vetted them, I've taken their story, I know they were survivors, I've got 
um, I got their other Iraqi IDs, that they will take the, those families and give them passports in a couple of weeks. They don't have to wait three years. Right now, the waiting period is three years. But this doesn't always work. I've sent a family by appointment the last two weeks. They went in two times, uh, and both times they were turned away. Everybody else was processed, but the Yazidis were not processed. There were four, four, seven. A family of three children and then four other Yazidis. They were not processed. They said, no, go away. Even though I had the written agreement and telephone agreement, email agreement to send the family in the first time they got turned right. Sorry, that was a mistake. Send them back. I sent them back. Again, they're turned away just a few days ago. So um, I just continue to fight one family at a time. I don't think I can fix Shangal or save the future of Iraq. I do do my best, but I'm sure I can't save it but I'm sure that I can make a difference in the life of one person or one family. So I just keep plotting along one family at a time. I've gotten between 700 and 1,000 Iraqi passports, and most of those people did get asylum. People ask me, how, how do I do what I do? Because I am like the only foreigner there. I'm the only foreigner, not just America, in Shangal. And I said, because I don't take no for an answer. So it wasn't just that I was in Chernak, Turkey, that I got pulled into this humanitarian work. It was because of my personality. There are many people who write to me every single week. Um, they said, I want to work for you. I can volunteer. You don't have to pay me. Just tell me what to do. But I don't get paid myself. I live on my government pension. And I don't have time to manage a whole bunch of volunteers or turn them into clones of me. Uh, when you become a humanitarian, I think there's a misperception that it's like a, like a sweet, soft job, huggy, kissy, you're welcoming people back from a terrible situation, you're holding their hand and crying with them. No, humanitarian work is not like that at all. Most of it's tedious. You're working with names of lists, you're going to meetings, you're calling people. Uh, but you have to be a warrior. You have to be the fiercest warrior to be a humanitarian because every obstacle that someone can put in your, in your path, they will put in your path. So between corruption in the government of Iraq from top to bottom, including Kurdistan, and bureaucracy, it's almost impossible to get anything done. It's some, some families, the family I told you, they had the massacre on their farm. It took me one year to get their passports, their IDs and passports. They're, they're now in Australia. I didn't give up. It was a several-year project to get them there. Um, so I don't take no for an answer. Everywhere I go and everything I do, it's no. So I have several philosophies I live by. One is that you don't need permission to be a humanitarian. You don't need to apply for a job and get selected. You don't need an NGO. You don't need anyone to tap you and say you can do it. What you need is the will to help. And in my case, a plane ticket. I bought a plane ticket, arrived at 3.30 in the morning to uh, Kurdistan, Iraq, and I didn't know anyone. And I said, I'm not sure exactly what I'll do, but I'm sure if all these people are displaced, that I'll find something useful to do. And I fell into the passport project. 
um, everything I do, I'm told, no, you can't do it. And how I got that is the personality. You have to have a personality that you're almost born with. Psychologists say that by the time a child is six, you've already formed your personality and character for life. And I believe that very strongly as a former teacher. I believe that. Um, we like to think that we shape and mold people, but most of it's done by age six. I had a mother who was a poet and a writer, and she taught me my love of language and writing. And I had a father who was different. He was very authoritarian. He was a banker, and he was very authoritarian because of the age that he was born in. And every time I wanted something, the answer was no. He also didn't have a lot of money. Um, so I grew up with rejection. Whatever I wanted, the answer was always no. No, 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 no. Reject, reject, reject. And I got used to overcoming no. I would take no, and I'd go back and think about what do I have to ask differently to get what I want? And I began to learn how to get around the answer of no. Uh, and then when I was the first year teacher, my school principal, we were in the 70s. The U.S. had come out of riots that had burned all the cities down and the schools were rioting. So he was very cautious about letting us do anything like school assemblies or uh, field trips. And, and I would go argue with him. And he always said no to me, but I wouldn't take no for an answer. He would tell me, I would say, why can't we do it? And he would give me a reason. Maybe I wanted an award ceremony. He said, maybe the, the, there'd be trouble. The bad boys would have a fight. And he even threatened me with my job. He finally let me have what I want, but he threatened me with my job if there was a problem. This built my personality to not be stopped by no. And that's the main message to a humanitarian. Everything you try to do, you're gonna be, encounter a roadblock. You can quit and say, I can't succeed, or you can say, I must succeed and keep trying. So I'm, I, I keep trying. I keep trying to get asylum for people, and I keep trying to get governments to put some billion dollars into recovering Shangal, and so far I'm not very successful, but I don't quit. Most days I fail, but sometimes I succeed. And every time I get passports for another family and they get asylum, I say, I must keep doing my work. So what you said about the early formation of personalities was very interesting. So all these survivors that you know personally, how do you think their personalities have been shaped by all these tragedies that they've been through? The uh, Yazidis will go to their grave with psychological problems. Absolutely. Uh, when I have interviewed Yazidi survivors in Germany, whose parents fled in 1981 from Turkey, from a previous genocide, all their villages were burned. They say that their parents, the, the, the children who were like six or seven when they fled, they said their parents still suffer severe psychological problems. They still cry when you talk. All the Yazidis who were displaced from Shangal have psychological problems. And all the Yazidis in the world who were not displaced, they also have psychological problems. Because this happened to a nation of people who are uh, without a country. We'll say. 
so every Yazidi in the world is deeply traumatized by this. And you can't fix it. You can't fix it. The women, there were 1,100 women and children who escaped, who were returned mostly with money from ISIS. They got asylum in Germany. And I visit them a couple times a year. So I've visited quite a few of them. I know them. And year by year, I see that they're doing better. The kids are speaking German. They're in public school. The kids are like regular kids. They go out on their bikes in the playground. And, and their memories, they were very young, two and six years old. Their memories are fading. The women um, have gone from wearing the black clothes of mourning and even scarves, just like the Muslim women in black, to wearing European clothing, modern clothing, no more scarves. They've gone back to wearing makeup, um, taking care of their personal appearance and their hair. And um, to, to the credit of the young Azidi men, the Azidi men have been marrying their girlfriends, who were their girlfriends before their girlfriend was captured by ISIS. To defy ISIS, who wanted to destroy their population based on this concept of honor and shame. Even if their girlfriend was held three years by ISIS, they were there for them when they came back and they married them. So there have been a lot of weddings going on in Germany. And as a celebration of defiance, that they will not be defeated, they open their weddings up to public, public invitations. So 2,000 people show up for a wedding. And they have dancing and music. I have seen over the last five years, I've seen the survivors thrive, begin to thrive. In terms of therapy, uh, many people say we need psychosocial therapy, we need to go talk to people. But talking is not the best therapy of what they need. Immediately when they've come back from uh, captivity, uh, they were seen by a psychiatrist uh, in Kurdistan. And they gave their story, their interview, to be selected to go to Germany. And they were also prescribed antidepressant drugs, some, some pretty heavy drugs, to get them through. Uh, sometimes I see them go up and down like on a wave, actually, because the drugs are making them laugh and happy. The best therapy they can have is security in a different country. There are children with them a home, the bills paid, and knowing they won't be sent back to Iraq, and forgetting. Forgetting for both the men and the women is the best therapy. So I'm quite reluctant when I go visit to ask them about the past, because it opens up a wound, and then they're traumatized maybe for days again. So the best therapy is security and forgetting and having a semblance of a normal life. Of course, you've got all these women with no husbands now. So they've had to learn how to uh, manage their money, manage going to the doctor and transportation, and they're doing well, they're thriving. I would have to say they're thriving outwardly, but inwardly their heart still breaks. Um, they still say their husbands are missing because they don't have the bones, have not been recovered or DNA tested. Um, and that's for most of them. They say they're missing. 
it's hard to go on with your life when you don't know if your husband is really dead in the ground or missing. Maybe he's somewhere as a prisoner in Syria. It's very hard for them. Um, justice is another thing that will help the healing. But so far, there's been very little justice, no court cases, next to no court cases, to bring ISIS to accounting in courts. This is also a very big cultural change for the survivors, I guess, because women in the Yazidi culture don't work. It is the man's responsibility to look after their wives, their daughters. And now, in a strange way, these women who managed to get asylum in Western countries, they are in a way liberated compared to what their life was going to be like, right? Because they can at least work. It's not only liberated the women, it liberated the whole younger generation, men and women. Many, many more women, even in the camps in Kurdistan, they want to complete high school and they want to complete university. So we have many, many women in university. Can you imagine studying the electricity goes out eight times a day? You're in a cold tent in the winter. You're living in a tent. And you have to go out to your university class and come home and try to do your homework in a tent, on a mat in the tent. And that's what they're doing. Um, And one girl this last year, she was the number one student. I forget which university it was. Out of the whole university, she was the top graduate. And she did that in a tent. So the Yazidis are very, very motivated for their education. Not all. Not all. The schooling inside the camps is a lot of NGOs have opened schools, so they can't open like full curriculum schools. They're doing their best, but they're not governments. So there's a generation we're losing of the younger kids, but the universities are back functioning. And many Azidi women are getting university educations and looking for work. They want to work, so they're delaying marriage because of this requirement that you have to be married to have sex, marriage is actually very, very young in the Middle East. Um, being a teenager is common to get married if the girl's 18 and the boy is 20. That's very common. Uh, younger girls can get married with the consent of their parents, and that happens some too. But more and more, you have young women who are educated or self-educated who are 26 and 30 years old. Same for the men. Same for the men. They continue to um, uphold the concept of virginity before marriage. So this puts extreme uh, physical and psychological and emotional stress on young people. They don't have a way to get married. Where are they going to live if they're in a tent with their parents and little siblings? How will they have income? How will they feed themselves? So they're deferring marriage and they're looking for work but there's not enough jobs for everyone in all of iraq there's just not enough jobs it's a very dire situation and what about the women who have obtained asylum abroad because i understand you're in touch with most of these people that that you have helped so have they adapted to a more western lifestyle um I would say most of them uh, are still learning the language. First, they went to Germany. That was the first country Angela Merkel 
welcome the Yazidis in this program. Um, and they are given a housing allowance, so their apartment is paid for, and they're giving um, like about 420 euro per adult, and children is something less, 200 and something. It varies depending on the city that they're living in. And their utilities and apartments paid for. And they get food cards, cards so they can go to um, wholesale food places that only the refugees get in with their card. And you can come home with two huge, huge bags of vegetables and nice food for $5. So they get food supplements. Um, and they're allowed to stay home till their children are, I think, eight. And they have to pass both men and women before they can work. They have to study German and pass a level. You have A1, A2, B1, B2, and you have to pass C1, written and spoken German. And that's pretty advanced. So the women, uh, if they have children at home, they can stay home. But if they don't have children at home, they have to be going every day to German class and attendance is taken. And if you don't show up, money's cut off. So they're still in the process of learning German, some of them learning it independently because they are home with their kids. Uh, and the men are still learning German. But now it's been some years. I know more and more men who've passed the C1 German test and they're working. Um, Germany is very, very generous with education. Education, even higher education through your PhD can be free. So if you're an immigrant in Germany, you can pass your German language test and then you can go to school or university as long as you want. And if you don't do that and attendance is being taken, then you have to go to work or the money's cut off. So they're getting the model that Germany has is really an excellent model because they don't want you to be poor. They want a population that's young and educated very skilled. They want engineers, IT people, doctors, nurses. They want you to be educated. America does not have such a model. America, they'll give you uh, the interpreters who'd worked for the U.S. Army and their houses were exploded. Their families, some of them got asylum. There's about 3,000 Yazidis living in Lincoln, Nebraska, in the U.S. Um, and they don't get that. They get some housing help and go get a job. It's like, go get a job. They've got English classes to go to, but you better not dawdle too long. You need to get a job because it's hard to live on the income they give you. The training is not stressed in America the way it is in Germany. Australia has a similar program as Germany. Um, the German program did not let the men in the family come, which was a very big downfall of that program. Still, there are women who are separated from their husbands and fathers for six years. They can't get to Germany. Germany has stopped what they call family reunification. So it's, it's tragic. Australia looked at that program and they said, we won't do a program like that. When we take a family, we'll take the men and the older, older men too, over 18, the brothers and men. So the families are kept intact in Australia if there were any men alive to take. But mostly there were no men alive with the women survivors. Um, 
And so they're not yet in the workforce, but they're coming close to being in the workforce. And some of them have part-time jobs. I know one, uh, his father was killed in Kocho, and he's 19 or 20 now. So he would have been 14. And he's an assistant manager for a big warehouse distributor. I think it's, I think it's Amazon. So he's in a three-year training program as assistant manager. Uh, the training programs pay you 50% of a normal salary. And then when you graduate after three years, you're let loose in the workforce. And he's very young and he's very successful. He's speaking German. He's on the soccer team. He speaks English. And he's doing great. Do you see any hope that Yazidi culture will survive as a result of this diaspora? Isn't it very difficult to maintain a culture? Um, the Yazidis are determined to survive. I am less optimistic. I'm less optimistic because their population has fallen below a million. And that's spread around the world. In Iraq, it's fallen to about 400,000. And then you have half a million about in the diaspora in many countries. And it's an inevitability that when you move to another country, your children are born Americans or born German or born Australians. And they're going to grow up and they're going to say, Grandma was an Azidi. She came from Iraq but they're going to be a different nationality and adopt the culture which they grow up in. It's very, very hard to maintain a culture in a diaspora. Um, so I say the choices for Azidis right now, there are no good choices. There are people who attack me for pushing for asylum and helping people leave. They say, we'll lose our culture. We'll lose our people, our music, our dance, our land, our, our native language. And I said, yes, that's true. They said, it's tragic. I said, but you'll have your life. You'll, you'll call yourself what I call myself, a human being. You'll have your life, your freedom. If you go back to Shengal, is Shengal recoverable? You can go back and you can all live together in the, in the hardest circumstances and maybe in two generations, you can recover your fields of wheat and your sheep and your houses. Maybe your children and grandchildren can recover, but they feel they'll have another genocide against them. So there aren't any good choices. Or you can just keep living in your tent for 10 more years. It's already been seven years. There aren't good choices for Aziz. To rebuild Shangal is going to take like $2 billion. It's, it's going to take a lot to rebuild all these communities for 400,000 people to go back. And there is no country who's stepped up to the plate and says, we'll do it. It's just not there. I'm not optimistic. I'm optimistic that the Yazidis who have survived can go on with their lives, but I'm not optimistic that they can protect all their traditions and culture. It's tragic. As you said, you are doing your best to follow up with the families that mm -hmm. you have had. You're even visiting them when when it's possible. Are you planning to write a second book, possibly a more 
positive one, telling the stories of the families who have managed to get asylum and have normal lives? Um, no, I'm not planning a second book, but I am planning to do something different with the book that I've published, The Last Yazidi Genocide. I've translated into Arabic. We're just finishing a final reviews of that in Arabic. And then I will upload that as an ebook on Amazon so that the Yazidis themselves and Iraqi citizens and government officials and judges can read it in Arabic. I'm making an ebook out of the English version right now with photographs. I have probably over 200,000 photos and videos of my own over seven years. And some of them are organized, but it's months of organization. So I want to build a website that's more of a multimedia experience to take those chapters in my book and illustrate them with the real photos you can see and know the people. I'd like to do more with video, maybe documentaries, uh, because we live in a world that even I, they don't want to read. People don't want to read a book anymore. They want to turn on Netflix or turn on a video and sit there and watch. So we have to work with the medium, like, like what you're doing. So my plan is to do more um, conferences and individual talk shows, radio and TV and multimedia to help the world understand who the Yazidis are, what happened to them, uh, and encourage individuals to be humanitarians. Because if I, I can help a thousand people, other people can too. I did it without permission. I never got a job. I never got paid a salary. I was told I can't go back to Iraq, and I, and I said, I, I won't leave. I will come. I was, said, I was told when I first went to Kurdistan, where's your contract? Who do you work for? I, I argued. Uh, I said, you really expect me to have to have a paycheck to come and work with these women who were raped? They could be my daughters. I don't need to be paid to help them. And I had to sort of humiliate them. So they backed down and said, okay, 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 you can be here and thank you for being here and here's your one-year visa. But I fought for that. And I will just continue to do it like that, overcoming the challenges and working by exception to the rule. Everything I do is an exception to the rule. The rule says no. And I said, well, this is a very special, unique case. Can you just help this one case? And that's how I keep pushing and, and succeed. Can I change the future of Iraq? I don't know. This is for Iraqis, the sectarian division, Shia, Sunni, Kurds. They have to figure this out among themselves. It's not for me to be political. I don't want to be political and mix in with their political partisan platforms. How can people support your work? Thank you for asking. Um, I take individual donations at paypal.com and my account is my email address, amybeam at yahoo.com. If you've never used PayPal, it's easy to use. You need a credit card uh, and you don't have to set up an account. You just enter your information. And then you enter the person you're paying, 
and that's an email address. So my email address is amybean at yahoo.com. A-M-Y-B like Bravo, E-A-M like Mary. Amybean at yahoo.com. And I get donations that are $10 to $50 or $100. I do have some great angel donors who've donated $2,000 and above. But those are few and far between. In the seven years I've been doing this, I've had fewer than 300 people donate to me. So the people who donate know me, trust me, see the work I'm doing. Um, They trust that it's not going to overhead. I don't pay myself a salary. And I think of them as my financial support team. They support me over and over, over and over they've donated. Anyone who wants to donate, if they donate more than $50, I'll send them a complimentary copy of my book. I will include your PayPal information in the description below. Also, your Twitter handle is at Amy Beam. I will include that too. Yes. And Um, the Facebook is Amy Albeam. I use my middle initial L for my Facebook um, because there's some other Amy Beams very active on the internet. And there, unfortunately, there is an Amy Beam who looked a lot like me in Florida who was convicted of murdering her child. So that's when I started using Amy Elbeam. Her her photo back years ago, her photo and my photo looked startlingly alike. <laughs> um, I'm sorry for whatever caused her to do that, but I differentiate myself, Amy Elbeam. And if someone wanted to get involved volunteering, what is the best way to get in touch with you? And what can they do? Yes, they can um, get in touch with me by my email, and I will reply to them. Email is the best way because it's very hard for me to keep track of chats on WhatsApp and Facebook. I get hundreds a day, and I I miss a lot of them. Um, And uh, the best thing to get started independently, if you just want to work at home and give a few hours a week, is to go on Facebook. And search for the Facebook groups with the name Yazidi. Yazidi, Yazidi, Yazidi. There's dozens of them. And thousands of people follow them. Or you can follow mine. Mine is a public Facebook. I have 25,000 friends and followers. You can look. You can see who's making comments. And you can contact them or join those groups. And then slowly, you can become involved. You'll see who speaks English, who writes English. All the Yazidis who are speaking and writing English want practice, and they all want a foreign friend. They need help with application forms. They just have questions about researching how things work. Uh, Maybe they want to apply for the U.S. Green Card program. They don't know how you do that. Every case is different. Every case is different. If you just adopted one Yazidi or one Yazidi family and said, that's all I can do, I'll try to be a friend to this. You would be amazed. It may turn into a lifelong friendship, and you may find a way to help them. Um, One woman asked, how can I help? And she was a single mom raising a daughter on a small budget. And uh, I gave her a friend. I said, could you be a friend? She says, I don't speak Kurdish. I said, I'll give you someone who speaks English. She says, I guess I could. And she said, what do I do? I said, just be a friend. That's all. You don't have to send money. Just be a friend. And so she reached out to this 
uh, man who'd gotten his family. Uh, he was in a camp, right, in Turkey. And a year went by. And she called me and said, Amy, I'm about to do something I've never done in my life. And I want to know if I'm doing the right thing. He's asked me for $2,000 and I'm going to send it to him. I've never donated more than $100. Is he scamming me or is he really going to go to Europe? Does he really need this money for the rubber dinghy to get from Turkey to Greece to get to Germany? I said, he's really going to do it. So she swallowed hard and she sent the $2,000 by Western Union. And that family got to Greece in a rubber dinghy. And they made their way to Germany. And today he's passed his C1 test. He's a licensed as a translator in Germany. He's working. He's got a car. The family has their uh, own house. And it was a good success story. And he considers her the most important person who touched his life and saved him. And that was the result of just being a friend. Because when you're a friend to someone and that friendship grows over one year or four years, it's very hard to turn your back on your friend. You want to help them. So get started at being a friend. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're ever going to send them money. But they do need friends. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It is incredibly inspiring. And I think there's not a single person in this world who doesn't need to hear this. So I really hope this message reaches as many people as possible. Greta, we have, the world has, they say between 60 and 80 million displaced people are refugees. So this isn't a single issue. This is a world issue. This is a humanitarian issue. It has to be every single person's responsibility to take care of We'll say one other person or one other family. They have to care whether they're doing political action or they're sending $5 or they're going to another country to help or they're helping with application forms. It has to be a new ethic. And that's what I want to encourage, that it's your responsibility. It's not somewhere on the other side of the world because the other side of the world is coming to your backyard. Those 80 million Refugees, they're coming to your backyard. So it's everyone's responsibility. And I want to thank you for doing your share to um, share this story. It's very important. Thank you for everything you do, Greta. Thank you very much for your time.